The newest rankings of the best places to work in the federal government had few surprises when they came out yesterday. NASA and the Government Accountability Office topped the list of large and medium-sized agencies, respectively. But the government, on average, continues to lag the private sector. Scores are published by the Partnership for Public Service, whose vice president of federal workforce programs, Michelle Amante, joins me now. Ms. Amante, good to have you on. Good morning. So it didn't seem like there was any big changes. I mean, the Homeland Security Department didn't magically move to number one on large agencies. It did better, but it's still at the bottom. NASA still at the top. So what can we take away from, from what we learned in the latest scores? I think what we take away from this year's best places is just overall, we see from the numbers that federal agencies really rose to the challenge of a very, very difficult year. Um, and leaders did this by providing, you know, personal and work-related support to their employees and finding new ways to deliver critical public services. Because, you know, the scores did rise for the agencies that did well. You had two variables, though, in the past year, and it's hard to know which one, one you had a change in administration from one, let's say, controversial to one that's maybe a bit more conventional in what employees might be used to. And secondly, you had everyone teleworking from the pandemic, not everyone, but large numbers of people. And so any clues that you're able to discern as to what the factor was that made the top performing agencies that much better, six, seven, eight, nine, ten points in some cases. Sure. Well, the survey was actually taken in the fall. So it would have been before the election. So this is um, these surveys reflect uh, numbers from the Trump administration. So we really can isolate this to how employees were feeling um, during COVID and during the pandemic and how their agencies were supporting them during that time. So in other words, the telework situation, that switch might be the thing that, that drove scores up a little bit? Absolutely. Federal workers really appreciated the ability uh, to have flexible work arrangements, which included telework, which included um, flexible hours. And they felt that their supervisors really cared for them and their well-being, which was a change from past years. Because even at Homeland Security, which, again, was at the bottom of the list of large agencies, it still had a significant rise in satisfaction scores from about 52 to about 61. And that's that is statistically significant, isn't it? Absolutely. And and I will say, even though uh, the Department of Homeland Security is at the bottom, they have been making consistent strides to really invest in their workforce, um, thinking a lot about uh, ways that they can make the, the family situation better for people on the border and for people really serving on the front lines of our country. So I do want to recognize, though, all the work that the that DHS is doing, even though they continue to be at the bottom. And I guess some of their component agencies do better than that average, too, don't they? That's right. And we were actually particularly impressed with FEMA this year because they did exceptionally well, despite, uh, you know, supporting during the pandemic. So, you know, there really are within each department a lot of bright spots. And what do you make of the fact that of the midsize agencies and the small agencies, the top ranking one are congressional agencies? You've got the GAO way at the top of the mid-size agencies with a really impressive satisfaction score of 89, and then at the small agencies with the highest score of anybody in government is the Congressional Budget Office. And you could say both offices had really wild years in terms of workload. <laughs> yes, it is It is fascinating. What I will say, um, because I'm very familiar with, um, with the work that GAO has been doing over several years, is that they have made a very intentional effort to increase their employee engagement. 
they make this part of uh, performance plans for their leaders. There's a lot of accountability at the very top. They invest um, deeply in diversity and inclusion efforts and have for many years. So this is very much a, a full agency effort for GAO. Um, and so really what you're seeing is all of their hard work over several years coming to fruition. We're speaking with Michelle Amante. She is the Vice President of Federal Workforce Programs at the Partnership for Public Service. And just briefly review how the satisfaction scores are derived. You use some corporate partners to help come up with these scores, and they're based roughly on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. But how do you get the best places to work rankings? So the way that the, the rankings are, are derived is we work with our partners, uh, BCG. We're very grateful for their support. And we, we use the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM distributes every year. And OPM is a great partner, and they, they share that data with us. And we use that data then to calculate the best list to work rankings each year. So it's based on selected numbers from the larger survey that are then sort of combined into a type of index, would you say? Is that a fair way to put it? Correct. The rank, right. The ranking itself is based on three specific questions that are weighted um, in a proprietary uh, ranking that we use every year for the best places ranking. So that's kind of tough on the OMB because they come in 29th of the uh, small yeah. agencies at the very bottom, and their scores went way yeah. down from 76 to 54. So did they say anything about that while they were putting all this together? Yeah, so we, we did talk. We did write a profile at OMB, and we did speak to some officials there. And what we what I can tell you is that they are very committed to, to making this this turnaround for their employees. You know, it was a difficult year for OMB, and I think uh, – their employees were sending a very strong message that they were not satisfied with leadership and that they wanted they wanted something to change. And so I think between their leadership results and obviously the controversy over Schedule F, that resulted in a very low ranking for OMB. But um, I can tell you that there is a lot of movement within the agency now to to work with their employees and make things better. Sure. Memo to Russ Vote. <laughs> Think of the memos you write if you ever get back in, I guess, or something like that. And looking at the scores, what's your best advice for agency management, agency leadership to uh, proceed here now that they know where they rank? What should they do next? So my best advice is to, number one, remember that uh, this is not just about feeling good. So we know that Employee engagement drives performance. So if you want to achieve, you know, there's a very large agenda for this new administration. If you want to achieve that agenda, you need to be thinking about engaging your employees. And so what we would recommend is take a really good look at your scores this year, take a few of the areas where you're really lagging, and do some very, you know, do some strategic planning to um, think through what are the specific actions that you're going to take over the next year to show your employees that you are working hard to correct those deficiencies. And also this week, or I guess late last week, the the uh, Biden administration came out with a 5,000-word executive order, and that's not including the appendixes and the uh, introductions, on diversity and inclusion and equity in the workplace. Do you suppose that if agencies improved on that front, then perhaps a greater percentage of their employees would express high satisfaction and therefore the scores could go up. Absolutely. Um, if, if you think specifically about the inclusion piece, if, if employees feel that they can bring their whole selves to work, contribute fully to the work, that will certainly um, lead to a more engaged workforce. So this is all connected and tied together. And I think that that will 
Uh, if agencies embrace that EO wholeheartedly, it will certainly make a difference in employee engagement. And anything that surprised you in the uh, results this year? I was I was searching. I didn't see anything that, wow, that was shocking, except maybe OMB. Um, <laughs> yes, OMB was a little surprising. We were excited to see that the IC moved up to the number two slot. So the number five, the top five agencies have not changed. However, the positioning keeps changing. So it's interesting to see how they uh, they all jockey for spots two through five. So the IC and, and DOT as well are very excited about their um, the jumps that they made this year. All right. Michelle Amante is the Vice President for work, Federal Workforce Programs at the Partnership for Public Service. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. 
and I had to run on the ballot as Vice President Black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as Vice President White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? 
Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.